Well, my name is Pat Abendroth. I'm one of the pastors here as well, and I have the privilege of introducing our guest speaker, Don Whitney. And before I do that in any kind of formalized fashion, I want to tell you a little bit about my friendship with Don, and it has a little bit of a twist, so you want to listen carefully. It was back in 1993 that I was first introduced to Don. That was almost 15 years ago, and right away I knew we would have a good friendship. So almost 15 years ago I knew because uh, he was right away teaching me about the things I needed to learn as a Christian, things I already knew, and yet he was reminding me uh, about keeping the, the main thing the main thing and focusing on basic spiritual disciplines and In fact, I was so impressed with what he was teaching me that I introduced as many people to Don as I could. And in fact, I've been introducing people to Don ever since, and and I value the friendship, and so I want other people to be his friend as well. And uh, it didn't just uh, start and stop there. Even after that time, uh, it was several years ago that I asked Don to come and speak at one of our men's breakfasts and then to preach on Sunday morning, and he was enough of a friend to agree, and he not only spoke at the men's breakfast, he preached on Sunday morning and preached uh, one of the most Christ-exalting, truthful sermons on hell that I've ever heard before. And as I listened, I I thought only a friend would would preach such a sermon as this. And I listened intently and and just praised God even as I was listening to to the message that he preached. Uh, Not only that, he was enough of a friend to agree when he was at Omaha Bible Church to uh, go and visit my mother, who was dying of cancer at the time. And uh, it just so happened in the providence of God, she was uh, well enough that day she could actually come to the service, and, and he was kind to her and gracious to her as a friend would be. Not only that, Don has been in Omaha uh, on occasion and asked me to coffee. He's that kind of friend. Not only that, when Don was uh, in the hospital with his own illness, we as a church, were, we were all praying for him as uh, friends would do. And not only that... I have something very, very ironic to say. I've been telling you about my friendship with Don Whitney. Yesterday, when I picked him up from the airport, was the first time I had ever spoken a word to Don Whitney. I've never met Don Whitney ever before in my life until yesterday. You say, have you been lying? (laughs) No, let me tell you how I've been such a good friend with Don Whitney. In 1993, I went to the Master's Seminary, and they told us we had to read his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. And I began reading it, and I loved the book, and he was enough of a friend through his book to, to tell me what I needed to hear. And I immediately began telling other people about my friendship with Don and what a friend he is, and I gave them the book as well, and he was their friend. And then he actually did come here and preach. And you say, how could you listen to the sermon and benefit so much? Well, I was with Todd Swift, and we were in Siberia uh, at the time. And uh, I have more to say about that, but I won't. I'll use self-control. But I, I, I was listening to him preach either on the Internet after, or after I got back or perhaps even in Siberia as he was preaching here. Uh, so we had that kind of friendship. Uh, Not only that, he actually was in town on occasion and asked me to coffee, and it didn't work out to go, Uh, but he did ask me, and uh, not only that, since then, we we talk um, every year or two or so, but it's always either through USPS or email. So, this conference is incidental. I just wanted to spend time with Don Whitney. (laughs) We've been friends for almost 15 years, and we've never met, so I'm so glad you could could, uh, help bring Don here so we could hang out. So we did have a great time of fellowship yesterday, and uh, it was good to finally meet him and to know that he's not just make-believe. And I'm so glad that he's here with us. 
Uh, and on a more serious note and in a formalized way, I'm thankful that he is here because he's able to come and share with us what he has shared with thousands of people by now through his books. And so I'm glad for that. He is the husband of Kathy and the father of Laurelin, who is almost 14, right? Remember that. And uh, he not only is a husband and a father, uh, he has about 24 years of pastoral ministry experience, and so he brings that to us as well. He's written some very, very helpful Christian books, and if you have not read The Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, I would encourage you to get it today. Maybe you could even have him uh, write something in it for you. It's just been a great friend of mine for many, many years. Uh, he is an Arkansas State Indian, and you say, why is that important? Well, that means he's the fan of a football team that actually does things like win homecoming games. Uh, it's more than we can say these days. Uh, and more significantly than that, he's the Associate Professor of Biblical Spirituality and Senior Associate Dean at Southern Seminary. And by the grace of God, that is no small thing. Uh, Southern Seminary, and we'll talk more about this in the Q&A, is a place where uh, God is doing amazing things. And uh, I'm so thankful that Don is there for what God is doing through that place at this time. He's the founder and president of the Center for Biblical Spirituality, and they have, or he has a very helpful website. I would encourage you to utilize those resources. Uh, if you're a pastor, I would encourage you to utilize those resources as well. There are bulletin inserts. There are book reviews. Just very, very helpful things. And yes, last but not least, Don Whitney is here because he is a friend. So let's welcome Don Whitney as he comes and challenges us from God's Word. Thank you, Pat. It's hard to know what to say after that uh, kind of introduction, except that I am delighted to be here. Um, I have looked forward to this. I was trying to think exactly when it was that I was preaching. Do you remember when you were in Siberia? Do you associate that with a particular year? Uh, I have in my something like five years ago. I have it in my record, so I don't remember exactly uh, when it was um, uh, that I was here. You can go ahead and, and uh, put that up there now. I think I know where I'm going to start with that. Well, thank you for coming out on a Saturday morning. It's, uh, it's very good to see you and a great delight to be back. I rejoice with you in, uh, in your new building and, um, and what the Lord's blessing on this church. And for those of you who are from other churches that I've met this morning, it's uh, uh, an honor to have you here as well, especially you pastors. I hope we'll be able to spend some more time with you later this afternoon. Well, the time is uh, brief for what I want to normally do in about four hours, so I want to get, <clears throat> get with that in this, uh, in this first session. Pat mentioned uh, my book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, which is the best known of my books. Uh, I did kind of a sequel to that called Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church because the Bible teaches both personal spiritual disciplines and interpersonal spiritual disciplines. Those that we practice alone and those that we engage with others to practice. For example, the Bible teaches about <clears throat> that we should get alone with God and pray. But the Bible also teaches we should pray with the church. The Bible would teach that we should get alone and worship God privately. But the Bible also teaches we should worship Him with the church. We should get into the Word of God individually. But we should also do as we're doing this morning and tomorrow. Hear the Word of God taught and preached with the church. Now, there are some spiritual disciplines that are by nature 
individual or private, personal, uh, like fasting, like silence and solitude, like keeping a spiritual journal. Some, by nature, are interpersonal. Uh, the preaching of the Word of God, for example, requires uh, the presence of other people. Um, uh, the, the ordinances, we don't serve the Lord's Supper to ourselves. That's a congregational experience. Um, fellowship, not merely socializing, but fellowship, talking about God and the things of God, koinonia, necessarily involves other people. Well, today we're going to talk about a couple of personal spiritual disciplines, the two most important ones, but to put that in the context of the larger. And to be Christ-like, which is the goal of the disciplines, the goal of the spiritual disciplines would be intimacy with Christ and conformity to Christ. Conformity to Christ in that we want to do what Jesus did. If we're going to be like Jesus, we want to do what he did, right? Insofar as sinful humans can, we cannot do what he did as God. But Jesus got alone to pray. We want to get alone with God to pray. But Luke 4 also tells us, as his custom was, he was in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So we too can gather together with God's people when they gather to study his word and and to worship him. So uh, like Jesus, we want to practice both the personal spiritual disciplines and the interpersonal spiritual disciplines so we can be like Jesus. But that conformity to Christ is not merely outward doing what he did. We also want to seek the heart of Christ because the Pharisees practiced most of the outward disciplines, but they missed the heart. There are a lot of people, though, who think they're pursuing the heart of Christ who are not doing what Jesus did. So we do need both the outward and the inward. That's conformity to Christ. But intimacy with Christ is also part of the purpose of the disciplines. This is how we experience God. So to summarize those two things, intimacy with Christ, conformity to Christ, we can make it even more brief, being with him, being like him. That's why we practice the spiritual disciplines, to be with Jesus To become like Jesus. So personal, interpersonal. We're going to talk about the two most important personal spiritual disciplines today. And they are the intake of the word of God in prayer. They're the most important of the personal spiritual disciplines. And in that order. Because it's more important for us to hear from God than it is for God to hear from us. So as important as the personal, as as prayer is, it's not as important as the intake of the Word of God. And yet with both of these basic, the most fundamental personal spiritual disciplines, there is a common, indeed almost universal problem with them both. And here is the problem that's virtually universal with The personal intake of the Word of God. It is a problem with our most devoted daily Bible readers. The people who are committed committed by the grace of God to trying to read the Bible every day of their lives. So even our most devoted daily Bible readers have this problem. They read a chapter of the Bible. They read three chapters. They read ten chapters. And then when finished, they close their Bible. And after closing their Bible, if pressed... On most days, they would have to admit what? Huh? I don't remember a thing I've read. Now, you know what we tend to do with that, especially the older you get, we say, well, you know, the mind's just not what it used to be. Or we say, uh, I just never had a high IQ to begin with. Or my educational level is kind of low. All of those things may be true, but those aren't the reasons why you don't remember what you've read. I have 22-year-old geniuses 
at the seminary, all of whom have the same problem. The problem is not you. It's your method. God has children that are 9 and 99. God has children with low IQs and high IQs. God has children with very little education and a great deal of education. And if he requires all of us to do the same thing, that is to get into the Word of God, then to do so profitably has to be fundamentally simple. It has to be doable by people like us. Bible tells us God didn't call many noble, many who are wise. He tends to call ordinary folks like us. And so if you, and by you I mean every converted person in this church, if you cannot profit satisfyingly from the Word of God with all your Christian advantages, you realize you're condemning virtually every Christian in the world to be unable to profit meaningfully, satisfyingly from the Word of God? And I know you don't believe that. I mean, you're saying that basically every one of those churches where Pat has been in Siberia, in India, you're basically saying that those people cannot profit from the Word of God if you can't. And I know you don't believe that. I know you'd never say, well, I don't believe those Christians can really profit satisfyingly from the Word of God. I just know that I can't. When I get into the Bible, I read it. I love the Word of God. I love to hear it preached. But when I read it, I close it. Most of the time, I don't remember a thing I've read, to be honest. Look, you have Christian advantages, like, you know, Bible-preaching church, which is not as common, many of you have already discovered, it's not as common as you would think, right? Even in metropolitan areas as big as Omaha. A very small percentage of them will preach the Bible, but you have that here. You have a Christian bookstore right here in your building. If you're from a church that doesn't have one, you probably have a church library where these resources are available. You have Christian bookstores in town. You can order Christian books off the Internet. You can hear the greatest Bible teaching in the world 24-7 on the Internet. And we could go on and on. And with all of these Christian advantages that you have, that most Christians in the world do not have, if you can't profit meaningfully and satisfyingly from the Word of God, then you're basically saying no one can. I was on a mission trip one time to, to Bush country in India where not even the pastor had a Bible. And, and that's more of a common experience in the world than for the people here this morning who have all your Christian advantages. So again, if you can't profit meaningfully, satisfyingly from the Word of God, you're condemning most of the Christians in the world to be unable to do so because they don't have your Christian advantages. But once again, I don't think there's a person here who would follow that and say, you know, I don't remember what I read from the Bible. And so I guess... There's probably nobody in the world who can profit meaningfully from the Word of God. No one here believes that. We just know our own experiences. I read the Bible by the grace of God. I try to read it every day, and I love it, but when I close it, I don't remember a thing I've read. problem is not you. It's your method. And the method for most people is to read it and then close it. That was never intended to be the primary means of absorbing 
the Word of God. Now, reading is the starting place. If you're not doing that, obviously you're not going to absorb much of the Word of God. But reading is the starting place. It's not the ending place. Reading is the exposure to Scripture. Meditation is the absorption of Scripture. And it is the absorption of Scripture that leads to the transformation of life that we're after. It is the absorption of Scripture that leads to the encounters with God that we seek through the Bible. It's not the mere exposure to Scripture. That's the starting place. That's what reading is. But unfortunately, that's where most people stop. They read it. They may read a lot. And then they close it. And that's the end of it. And immediately upon closing it, as we've said, they already would admit, I don't remember what they've read. Therefore, it's not going to bring much transformation. When was the last time your daily reading of the Word of God changed your day, much less your life? Unfortunately, most of us would say it's, you know, it's been quite a while. The problem's not you. It's your method. And the basic problem, <clears throat> to put it in a paraphrase of the words of the warden in Cool Hand Luke, is this. What we've got here is a failure to meditate. Very simple. We're not meditating on Scripture. Because remember, whatever the solution is, it must be fundamentally what? Simple. It's got to be doable by every person in this room to get into the Word of God satisfyingly, meaningfully, transformationally, on a regular basis, has to be fundamentally doable because most of God's people are ordinary people. And if the ordinary people who have all the Christian advantages can't, are you willing to say that no one in the world can hardly? No, we don't believe that. But my argument is we're simply not meditating on the Word of God. Now... I'm going to just fly through this because you have the handout on this. And again, frankly, I spend four hours on this subject that I have an hour on today. And this is in there primarily because uh, when I say meditation, a lot of people aren't aware that the word is in the Bible, that it's a biblical uh, command. And there is such a thing as biblical meditation. They hear meditation, they think of somehow transcendental meditation or what people do on public television when they're doing yoga or something like that. And they're either delighted that you're bringing that into the church, or they're horrified that you're bringing that into the church. Uh, they're delighted because they think meditation is just a great practice, and you know we can adopt that, baptize that Christianly. Or they're horrified because they realize that kind of meditation is contrary to Scripture. Well, both need some clarification. Worldly meditation says empty your mind, get everything out of your mind. If you hear someone saying that, that's not biblical meditation. Christian meditation involves filling the mind, filling the mind with thoughts of God, with the truth of God. Worldly meditation desires mental passivity. If someone ever says, don't think, I want you to meditate now. Don't think, stop thinking, run from that. That's not biblical meditation, which requires constructive mental activity. You are trying to think of something, of God, of the things of God. Worldly meditation employs visualization to create your own reality. Well, visualization can be a good or a bad thing depending upon how you define it. You visualize this building before you even went to an architect. You know, what kind of building do we want? Where do we want it to sit on the property? Those sorts of things. How will it be divided up? You know, God gave us the imagination, so we're to sanctify it for His glory. 
But worldly meditation employs visualization to create your own reality. An interesting term there. Uh, this has had an incredible resurgence uh, popularly uh, with the book The Secret. And if you've run into that, uh, I've got a review of that book on my website, um, which uh, you, you may find useful if you're encountering uh, that book, which is the best-selling book in history of its type. Um, but actually uses the term creating your own reality in there. But Christian meditation says, according to the Bible, whatever's true, let your mind dwell on these things. Not that we can't, of course, use fiction as a vehicle for the truth, but we're to think on what is true. And we link meditation with prayer and action to see changes. We don't believe that simply by, by visualizing something, we can bring it about. We may visualize a building. We may visualize someone being saved. We want to use visualization as the term. But we pray for God to save them. And then we take action. We share the gospel with them. We pray. We, we visualize a new building here. But we pray for God to provide. And then you go to work, breaking ground and raising money and so forth. So just a brief clarification of what I mean and don't mean. Because I've discovered if I don't do this, sometimes there are a great disparity of understandings of what we even mean by the term meditation. Now let me quickly define it for you as deep thinking. Some people say, well, that leaves me out. Well, whatever deep thinking is for you. Because once again, remember, this has to be doable. This is not in your handouts. Uh, this has to be doable by everyone. So it's deep thinking on the truths and spiritual realities revealed in Scripture. In other words, you meditate on something found in the Bible. Or on life. And you bring that to the Bible. In other words, meditation, and we'll normally talk about it in this hour, just meditating on a verse of Scripture. But you can start with something from the Bible, meditate on that, and bring that to your life. Or you can start with your life and take that to the Bible. The Bible tells us to meditate on four things. A lengthy footnote about this at the end of one of the chapters in the book. The Bible says most of all to meditate on the Word of God. More than half the references on meditation talk about meditation on the Word of God. We're going to look at three of them in a moment. But the Bible also tells us to meditate on the world of God, on His creation, on the ways of God, His providence, and on the character of God. So you can meditate on the ways of God, providence. Why is this happening to me? Why did I get colon cancer 20 months ago? And you may ultimately say, well, I don't know. But I know this because I take that to the Bible. God causes all things to work together for good. Who those who love Him who are called according to His purposes. So I start with life. Something outside the Bible, my experience, my health, my problems, my crises, God's creation. And I bring that to the Bible and think biblically about it. That's what we mean. So all of that is to say thus far, biblical meditation can start with the Bible or you start with something else and bring it to the Bible to think biblically about it. And you do so for the purposes of understanding, application, and prayer. An analogy of this might be a cup of hot water in a tea bag. In this case, the cup of hot water is your mind, and the tea bag is the Word of God. If you just plunge a tea bag into boiling hot water in the cup for a moment, take it out, what happens? Not a lot, right? Little tea comes out, but not a lot. Often that's the way our exposure to the Word of God is. Quickly, we look at a verse. We look at one verse for two seconds, two seconds on the next verse, two seconds on the next verse, and we close it. Very little impact. Meditation is when you put the tea bag in there and you let it steep. And let the Bible brew in your brain so that it begins to color the water, that reddish-brown color that we are familiar with. 
Meditation, therefore, is when the Bible begins to color your thinking. You know, just look at it, close it, it begins to color your thinking about something you said or did last night. It colors your thinking about something you're planning to do this afternoon. It colors your thinking about your view of God, your view of God's ways in your life, your view of your own heart, your view of a particular doctrine. It begins to color your thinking. But a tea bag doesn't just color the water, does it? What else does it do? It's flavor, doesn't it? It's where you get the taste. This is where we taste spiritual reality, where information becomes experience. This is how we, for example, taste and see that the Lord is good. We, we enter into, if you will, experience spiritual realities taught by the Word of God through meditation on the Word of God. Not just information we process. These are experiences we enter into through meditation. When I was in seminary, I had a professor who was from Louisiana. And he used to talk about the chicory coffee that they have down there. And he said, you have one cup of that in the morning. Anytime the rest of the day you want coffee, you just drink hot water. It leaves such a strong taste in your mouth. You just drink hot water the rest of the day. That just kind of instantly brews coffee right there in your mouth. You know? That's the way it is with the Word of God. You get a strong enough taste of the truth of God's Word that any time the rest of the day, whatever you're doing, you're driving to work, you're in line at the drive-thru at lunch, you're driving home, you're staring at the window of the car of an airplane or something like that, or you're lying in bed and you can't go to sleep, or you wake up in the middle of the night, you should be able to say, now what was that verse? And you should still be able to taste it if you sufficiently meditated. All of which is to say, my, my personal benchmark is this. If I can't remember what, a verse as soon as I close my Bible, if I can't remember the verse driving the work, if I can't remember it at lunch, if I can't remember it at night, that clearly tells me I did not sufficiently. Why? I didn't meditate. Because when you meditate, you can still taste it. You should be able to remember it any time of the day or night. Because that's when the Bible tells us we are to meditate. As we see in this passage from Joshua 1.8. Moses is dead. He's left this big old scroll or maybe five big scrolls with Joshua. I'm not sure which, of course. But Joshua is being commissioned in this passage as the new leader of the people of God. And as God commissions him, he says to him, Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it once a day. No? Oh, you're right. Day and night. Well, now, wait a minute. This is Joshua God is telling him to meditate day and night. This is the civic, the military, and the judicial leader of... How many people live in Nebraska? Roughly. Yeah. Okay, 1.7 million, Joe says. More people than that. Joshua is the civic, military, judicial leader of more people than live in this state. Pretty busy man. 
God expects him to meditate day and night? Well, surely that's ministerial exaggeration, right? Sort of hypothetically, this is euphemistically. He didn't literally mean for Joshua to meditate day and night, did he? Think so? Well, now how is he going to do that? Do you think God means for him to walk around with a big scroll in front of him day and night so he can meditate? I doubt it. Because God had given him other things to do, right? He's in charge of the government. He's in charge of the army and not the armchair general. He's the battlefield leader. And he is the Supreme Court. And God expected him literally to meditate day and night? Well, if he's not going to carry a big scroll around in front of him, how's he going to do that? I submit that the only way he could do that is that once during the day he absorbs something from the Word of God in such a way he can taste it. Walking to a meeting with members of his cabinet. As he's standing out on the battlefield, preparing to fight, he can remember something from the Word of God. As he's adjudicating a case, thinking, ah, something they just said reminds me of what I was thinking about this morning. Throughout the day, whatever he's doing, he could recall something he had absorbed from the Word of God. It's the only way he could do that. He's to meditate day and night. But notice the result. You should meditate day and night so that, in order that, for the purpose that, you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then, when's then? Then when? Huh? When you do it. Sometimes people say meditate. No, you meditate so that you may be careful to do it. For then, after you've done it, then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have success. Let's call that last part of that. Then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have success. Let's just generically call that God's blessing for the time being. Because whatever it means, and whenever we get it, this life or the next, we want it, right? Whatever that means... We want it. Well, what's to precede that? Well, the obedience. Thus far, no news to anyone, right? Everyone here knows that. We want God's blessing whenever we get it, whatever it means. And we know that what usually precedes that is obedience. Our obedience doesn't earn God's blessing. Often God blesses us even in our disobedience. But we know that the general principle of Scripture is we can't expect God's blessing apart from obedience, right? The question we never seem to ask is, what leads to the obedience? And according to Joshua 1.8, what is it? Meditation. Remember what it says? You shall meditate day and night so that you may be careful to do it. For then, after you've done it, then you will make your way prosperous, then you will have success. And the reason why this sequence is so is because obedience is, another word for us, for, is Christ-likeness. From before the foundation of the world, Romans eight twenty nine says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. God predestined that all those in Christ are going to be made like Christ. That's eternity past. Eternity future... 
The word that describes our state in the eternity future is glorification, Christ-likeness. We're going to be made like Jesus, not in his divinity, but in his glorified, sinless, perfect humanity. Eternity past, predestined to be like Christ. Eternity future, glorified like Christ. So in time, in your life, the more you're becoming like Christ, that's what God loves to bless. Because you're fulfilling the eternal plan. God says, you get it. You understand what you were made for, what you were predestined for, to be like Jesus. So as you're obeying, you're living like Jesus. That's why he blesses obedience. Because that's what we're created for. That brings glory to his son. What we don't ask is, what makes me more obedient? And this passage says, it is meditation. Well, I was thinking about this one day. How does that happen? How is it that meditation leads to obedience? Some of you can't see this, but I'm going to write Psalm 39.3 up here. I came across that one day where David says, While I was musing, what does muse mean? It's to think, to meditate. While I was musing, the fire burned. And this fire was apparently, we would say today, like a fire in his belly. He was angry at someone. It could have been someone in his own government. It's really not clear, I don't think. Whether someone in his own cabinet who's kind of done something against him, set him off. We don't know whether it could have been an external enemy. But the more David thought about it, the angrier he got. And you've been there, haven't you? You have conversations that you replay, conversations you wish you would have had, or you relive what happened, and the more you think about it, the angrier you get, right? That's what David happened. He had this fire within him, and every time he thought about it, meditated on it, the fire burned, increased in its intensity smoldering there all the time, but every time he thought about it, it blazed up again. And that's when I saw this. God says to Jeremiah, Is not my word like a hammer and a... Anybody know? A fire. Is not my word like a hammer that breaks hard hearts and a fire that melts cold hearts? God says his word is a fire. Meditation is like a bellows on a fire. So that when we muse or meditate, the fire burns. In other words, when we take the fire of God's word, it already is a fire. It's not my word like a hammer and a fire. God's word is like a fire, he said. When we meditate on the fire, that meditation is like a bellows on the fire. And when you put a bellows to a fire, it flames up, right? What happens is when you meditate on a text of Scripture, that meditation is like a bellows which causes that flame to blaze up. And as a fire increases in its burning, at least two things emanate from that fire With greater intensity, you get more heat and more light. 
As the fire blazes up, you get more light, more heat. Meditation on the fire of God's Word causes us to have more light, more insight. We see sequence like this cause and effect we didn't see before. We have observations into the text we didn't see before. We see applications. We have more aha moments where we go, that's what that means. I finally see it. Now I get it. We have illumination is the theological term there. You have light. And that is experienced on a regular basis as we meditate on the Word of God. <coughs> Excuse me. And meditation is like a bellows on the fire of God's Word. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm going to need a cup, some cough drops before the day is over. <coughs> Thank you. I've been struggling a little with it, and uh, it's not gone away. Um, so, meditation on the fire of God's Word to get more light, but we also get more heat. When you sin, is it generally because you don't have enough light or enough heat? Is it because you don't know what to do or you don't feel like doing what you know to do? Our problem most of the time is lack of heat, isn't it? We don't feel like obeying. We know what we ought to do, but we don't feel like stopping. We know we ought to keep our mouth shut, but we don't feel like keeping our mouth shut. We know we ought to get up and do something, but we don't feel like it. Our problem most of the time is not a lack of light. It's a lack of heat. Where does the heat, where does the fire, where does the passion, the desire, the willingness to obey come from? Meditation. It is through meditation on the fire of God's Word, we not only see how to obey and how we ought to obey, we begin to feel like obeying. Here's the way it works. <clears throat> Suppose that right here, this is, this is a fire that's burning right here. And I've been outside on a cold day. And I'm really cold. And I come in. Whew, boy, I'm cold. Oh, but there's a fire. Oh, good. Oh, oh, that fire feels so good because I'm cold. I'm cold. I'm still cold. I don't get it. Why am I still cold? I went right by the fire. Huh? Then stay by the fire, right? You've got to stay by fire to get warm, don't you? You've got to linger there for a bit. It warms your skin, then it warms your muscles, then it warms your bones, and you're good and warm. But you have to stay there for a while for that to happen. You can't just sashay by the fire. And then say, I wonder why I'm still cold. I guess something's wrong with me. I'm just a second-class warmer-upper problem's not you it's your method you didn't linger by the fire god said is not my word like a hammer and a fire you want it to warm your heart you want it to change your behavior you want the the fire the heat the passion the desire to obey to be within you you must linger by the fire that's meditation because otherwise you open the Bible and you read two seconds over the first verse and it takes you two seconds to read the second verse and two seconds over the third verse and two seconds over the fourth verse. I don't care how many of those two second episodes you have. You're not likely to have your heart warmed by passing by for two seconds. You know what you feel deeply about? It's what you think deeply about. 
you don't feel deeply about something and are changed by something you think about for two seconds. If I said to you, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich, rich with God. You could say, well, amen. And we go on and you never think about it the rest of the day. But if you were to think on that text and nothing else for five minutes, if that doesn't warm your heart, you're not a Christian. If that doesn't move you, you're not a Christian. The problem is we never think just for five minutes about a great truth like that. We may read great truths like that every day, but look at them for two seconds each. And you're not moved by something you think about for two seconds. So you see why I say the problem's not you. It's your method. You can be deeply moved by things you think much about. Just that our method is we walk by the fire for two seconds. And then afterwards we say, I guess there's something wrong with me. It's not you. It's your method. Well, let's go to another passage where we change the analogy from fire to water. We think this is King David. We're not sure. He says, how blessed, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates once a day. No. (laughs) Well, now, wait a minute. Once again, this is King David, the civic, the military, the judicial leader of some two million people again. How in the world can a man with more responsibility than any ten of us put together, how can he meditate day and night? Because just like you, God had given David other things to do. Yes, you can say, he's given me the word of God to read and Be changed by, but God's given me a job to take care of, a family to take care of, a home to take care of, a church to serve in. God has given me many things to do. Yes, He's given me to get into the Word of God. That's something God wants me to do, but that's not the only thing God's told me to do. So how am I going to do that day and night in light of all the other things God's told me to do? And you know, I fear that at this point, some people, what they're hearing is this. Don, I know that's in the Bible, but you don't know my life. I'm working two jobs. I'm working seven to eighty hours a week. I'm a single parent. And there are days, God is my witness, ten minutes in the Word of God is the best I can do. The best I can do. And what I hear you saying is, well, if you'll do more, you'll be better. I know that. I know if I do more, I can be better. The problem is I can't do more. You're only making me feel guiltier. What you're saying is, oh, 10 minutes, that's not enough. You've got to spend at least 20 minutes. You've got to read for 10 minutes. You're going to have to meditate and do this for 20 minutes. And Don, I don't have 20 minutes some days. This is not good news. You're only making me feel guiltier. This is a burden. You're not helping. You're making it worse. I feel guilty enough as it is. I feel enough of a spiritual failure. That is not what I'm saying. And I want to finish this session coming right back to that illustration. If I don't help me remember to do that. I want to come back to that person who says, I only have ten minutes. So this is good news. This is help. 
This is not adding to your burdens. This is helping with them. But with all the other things God has given us to do, acknowledging that how in the world can someone busier than any of us, how did God expect that incredibly busy man to meditate day and night? Not just once a day, but day and night. Well, once again, I would submit the only possible way to do that is that once during the day, he absorbed the word of God in such a way that whatever he's doing throughout the day, he could recall. Let's see now, what was it? Oh, yeah. He's just walking somewhere. Going to the bathroom. Waiting at a stoplight. Waking up in the middle of the night, you can say, now what was that for? Oh, yeah. You can chew on that again. Day and night. Has to be doable. But if God expected it to be doable by someone that busy, it's certainly got to be doable by all of us. And the result of such is that he will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit. In its season. In other words, your life will count for the sake of the kingdom. Your life will be fruitful. You will bear spiritual fruit. This will change your life. You will see evidence of the Spirit of God within you. You will bear fruit. Transformation of life. Change. Spiritual fruit will result when you meditate on the Word of God. I ask again, when was the last time your daily intake of the Word of God made a change? Brought transformation to your just your day, much less your whole life. Well, for most of us, it's pretty rare. And I would argue it's a simple solution. And we're simply not meditating. When you meditate on Scripture, it brings fruit. And also it's true of this person, and its leaf, its leaf shall not wither. You don't burn out. You don't dry up. Spiritually. Some of you may have come here today just hanging by a thread. I, I'm so spiritually dry. You said, but I, and I read the Bible every day. Reading's exposure to Scripture. Meditation is the absorption of Scripture. Meditation is what opens up the soil of the soul so that the water of the Word of God percolates deep within us. So you may work or live in a spiritual desert. No encouragement, no fellowship, no reinforcement of your spiritual life where you spend most of your day. You meditate on Scripture. You've got these streams of living water, always refreshing, there to restore you. And for this person, the promise is, and whatever he does, he prospers. There it is again. God's blessing. He prospers. Well, we want that, don't we? Whatever it means, whenever we get it, we want it. Well, what leads to that? Well, we know the general principle of Scripture is obedience leads to that. We can't expect God's blessing. Our obedience doesn't earn it, but we sure can't expect God's blessing apart from obedience. But what leads to obedience? Meditation. So often in Scripture, almost always when you see the word success or prosper, 
It's connected, as it is here in Psalm 1, with meditation. What happens when you get a hard rain on hard ground? Runs right off, right? Does very little good. I would argue that's what you and I are. We are hard ground upon which a deluge of the water of the Word of God comes down. Most people who come out on a Saturday morning for a conference, you're probably here at the church two or three times a week, perhaps. Or at least two or three times a week, you're getting some Bible study in addition to the preaching that you get here. And the Bible study you may also get on a Sunday morning outside of worship. You're probably the kind of person who listens to Christian music or Christian radio. You maybe listen to Christian teaching or you read Christian information on the Internet. You read Christian books. You're the kind of person that gets more of God's truth probably in a day than the average person in the world gets in a lifetime. <clears throat> so that the water of the Word of God is just like a deluge upon your life. But if you don't absorb it, it just runs off. It does very little good. And if you can't remember it, even as soon as you close it, if you can't remember it, how much is being absorbed? And once again, if you don't absorb it, it's running off. It's doing very little good. And you add in addition to that information, the Christian truth and information you get, think of all the other information you get. It's going through the pipeline of your mind. By the time we meet here again tomorrow, 400 new books will be published in this country. Most of which are not worth reading, but some of them are. And by the time you go to work on Monday, another 400 will be published. I saw in USA Today recently, the average American now has, I think it's 92, might have said 96, 92 television channels in their home. Some people say 92. You know, I, I don't get but a fourth of that, okay? So that means that there, for every one a person like you, there's somebody that has, you know, some 200 or more. And with that many... There's always something on that's worth looking at. Now, most of it's not. But when I was in the hospital, I was in 18 days with the hospital when I had uh, my surgery. And I noticed, you know, 24-7, there's something on here that's interesting, edifying. In Kentucky, we have three uh, public television channels. You've got the History Channel, the Discovery Channel, the National Geographic Channel, the Learning Channel, Home and Garden, uh, uh, you know, and... Christians, channels, so on, with all those going 24-7, I discovered, you know, in hospital, you're often up all hours and so forth. There was always something on you thought, this would be interesting. This would be edifying. This isn't junk. I mean, most of it was junk. But with that many channels, there was always something on that was, I think, this is good. I, I remember watching a special on the correspondence between John and Abigail Adams. And I just listened to the Pulitzer Prize winning biography of John Adams. And it was terrific. And so we've got 400 books coming out every day. We've got 92 television channels. So it means 24-7 there's always something on. Millions of pages are added to the Internet every day, many of which contain valuable information. I read three newspapers every night. Two newspapers every night, three on Monday and Wednesday, while I'm watching the news at night. Just scanning the papers, looking for things cut out, putting my books and my messages and so forth, and filing those things, all the while I'm listening to television. I'm not even aware 
I'm listening. You know, just, uh, huh? The Royals lost again? What was the score? Or what's the weather? I remember one night listening to Brian Busby, our weatherman in Kansas City, uh, when I, I lived there for 10 years. I suddenly realized, I'm reading the paper, and I suddenly realized he's giving me the weather forecast for Afghanistan. But why do I need to know the weather forecast for Afghanistan? Now, General Tommy Franks needed to know the weather forecast for Afghanistan, but I didn't need to know that. And it suddenly occurred to me that my grandparents, who, who married in, in March of 1919, and probably didn't know, didn't even know that there is an Afghanistan. And I know the weather. That's more information than I need. I, I went, uh, <clears throat> after I had my first uh, major checkup after my surgery, back with my, my surgeon in Louisville, who's supposedly the best in, in the city for this kind of thing, I had been with a friend of mine, a, a pastor in Georgia, who had uh, gotten uh, type 1 diabetes as a result of an antibiotic he had taken. And I never heard of that before. And I came, come back on Sunday. Uh, Wednesday, I read in USA Today where they have announced this. They've done a study. It's been killing some elderly people, especially and giving people type 1 diabetes. And the next day, I read about it in Newsweek. And that very same day, I go to my surgeon. And I, I hear, here's USA Today and Newsweek. Did you know about this? Never heard of that. And I've been taking this, these things like Tic Tacs that he's been giving me. He didn't know anything about it. I went next door to the hospital immediately after that to visit someone. It happened to be on the very same floor where I had been. And I asked the nurses, uh, did you know about this? Oh, yeah, we've taken it out of the hospital. And here is the, the leading surgeon in Louisville about this. He hadn't even heard of it. Folks, we are in trouble when the leading surgeon in Louisville hears about this from me. <laughs> about antibiotics from me that I get from USA Today and Newsweek. And one of the, a few books I've read more than once other than the Bible, but a couple of books I've read twi- uh, four times, I'll continue to read. One is called Margin, and the other one is The Overload Syndrome by the same author, a Christian named Richard A. Swenson, very fine believer. And he's a medical doctor. And he said, if I read two technical medical journal articles every day, just in my narrow field of specialty, at the end of one year, of devoted reading like that. At the end of one year, I'd be five years behind in my reading. Now, do you want your doctor, your surgeon, to read those things and be up on the latest stuff so he doesn't give you antibiotics that's going to give you diabetes? Well, yeah. But do you realize it might take him an hour to read these? I mean, this is not, you know, simple little, you know, like our daily crumb or our daily bread, uh, you know, devotional reading thing. This is... This is heavily detailed research, technical medical journal articles. So it might take him an hour in the morning to read one, an hour in the afternoon to read another. And if he does that, he'd be five years behind in his reading after a year. Do you want him to do that? So he knows not to give you this stuff? But you know what? If he spends all that time reading that kind of research, you know what he can't do? See you. Because he's too busy reading, doing research. So do you want him to be up on the latest stuff so he won't give you pills that give you diabetes but have time to see you and talk with you? Or do you want him to have time to see you and not know about stuff? Or did I get that backwards? Anyway, you've got a choice. He can either see you and not know about the stuff or know about what's going on but not be able to see you. Take your pick. 
And many of you feel like you're in the same situation where you work. You, you know, you, you're constantly piles and piles of stuff that you feel like, boy, if I'm not aware of this stuff, I'm going to make the wrong decision. So you're overloaded with all that information. Then you come here and find out 400 books are being published every day. And you go home and you've got 92 TV channels. <clears throat> Millions of pages being added to the Internet. Your email inbox is filling up while you're sitting here. You can get a phone call anytime. Maybe you got voicemails you need to return. And on and on. And then you open this book. And you read a chapter. You read three chapters. You close it. And you think that's going to change your day? Like George Mueller said, it's like water passing through a pipe. For the moment that you've got the Bible open in front of you, you've got, as it were, the gallon of water of God's Word in your pipeline of your mind. But as soon as you close it, that's gone. And the next thing comes in. You go out, you turn on the vehicle, and the radio instantly comes on. And that is in your head. I mean, just like today, you, you could walk out of here saying that was the greatest conference I've ever been to. It's, you know, incredibly transformational. You get in the vehicle, turn it on, and the huskers come on, and everything this morning is gone. I mean, it happens on Sunday. You may hear the greatest sermon ever preached here. You get out of here, turn it on, and the football game comes on in your car, and see, the great sermon is gone. Folks, it's not just what passes through our minds. It's what we absorb that matters. And so regardless, and the information, the, the, the water pressure in the pipeline is increasing every day. It's not what we're exposed to. It's what we absorb that, that makes a difference. And reading is the exposure to Scripture, but meditation is the absorption of Scripture. And it's the absorption of Scripture that leads to the transformation of life. But what we've got here is a failure to meditate. Our most devoted daily Bible readers are not meditating. They think the problem is them. It's not you. It's your method. <clears throat> well, let's see this in the New Testament. James 1.25. But one who looks intently. You don't just look at it. But you look intently. That's meditation. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become what we have become. Not having become what we have become, a forgetful hearer, or in our case, a forgetful reader. We read it, but we forget it. Not having become that, but an effectual doer. This man, which man? Which man? The doer. This man will be blessed in what he does. It doesn't necessarily say... What you do will be blessed, but you will be blessed in what you do. What you do may fail, but you will be blessed. You will thrive. Is that last phrase there, does that sound familiar to you? And whatever he does, he prospers. Psalm 1. But again, notice the sequence. What does the Bible say? We want to be blessed in what we do, right? We want God's blessing. Well, what's going to lead to that? What does our text say there? The doer of God's Word. That's the one who's blessed. Not the one who just reads it. But the doer of God's Word is blessed. That's the person becoming like Jesus. That's the person fulfilling what they were designed to be. Like Christ. God loves to bless conformity to His Son. 
But we know obedience must precede blessing. What we don't ask is, what makes me more obedient today than I was yesterday? When you look intently. You don't just look at it. You don't just read it and forget it. But that's what we do. The Bible says, that's not the way you become obedient. That's not the path to blessing. It's meditation. That's simple. Now, that's not always easy to do. It's certainly not always easy to obey, but that's not hard to figure out. Because if it's got to be doable by all of God's people, it's got to be simple. And that's simple. You want the blessing of God? You need to be obedient. Well, I knew that. But what makes me more obedient? It's meditation. And we don't meditate. We read, but we don't meditate. Two seconds over the first verse, two seconds over the next verse, two seconds over the next verse. And I don't care how many two-second episodes you pile up in a day. You're not going to be transformed by something you think about for two seconds. Well, by this point, I hope you're motivated. You say, man, I see it now. It's not just the reading of the Word of God. It's the meditation on the Word of God. It's not just exposing myself to the Scripture. It's, being a, it's absorbing the Scripture. So, man, I have got to meditate. So you go home, get your Bible out, you read a chapter. All right, <clears throat> there it is. I'm going to meditate now. Meditate, meditate. All right, get ready, meditate. I wonder if they ever dust those lights. <laughs> supposed to be meditating. Meditating on the Word of God. It's interesting how they, you ever notice they put these little things under there and the carpet squares are turned on a diagonal? That was pretty clever the way they... What? I'm supposed to be meditating on the Bible. What am I doing? I'm not, I'm not getting anything. I don't have time for this. I've got to go to work. I don't, I'm not getting anything done. That's not meditation. That's daydreaming. Now, there's a place for that. I have a book out there. Simplify, I think it's out there. Simplify Your Spiritual Life. Where's a little chapter? Do nothing and do it to the glory of God. There's a place in the time just to, you know, kick a can down the road. But that's not meditation. With meditation, you are intentionally trying to think about something. Remember that contrast? We had those two columns up there, constructive mental activity. With meditation, you're not just your mind wandering, but you're taking your mind, you're putting it on a track. You're looking for something. And therefore... We want to go on in the last ten minutes to talk about methods of meditational scripture. You have a handout on this. Methods of meditational scripture. Thus far, you may just be motivated to meditate, but what do you do? Well, for starters, you've got to choose something to meditate on. I would recommend this, that after your Bible reading, you choose a verse or phrase. You read a chapter. You read three chapters. After you finish, you go back and pick a verse. Generally, it's going to be one that stood out. You never saw that verse in there before. Or just jumped off the page and grabbed you by the throat. But sometimes that doesn't happen. You read it and you say, nothing stood out. All right, then just choose a key verse. If you're reading John chapter 3, nothing stands out. What are the key verses? John 3, 3. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Or John 3, 16. Or John 3, 17. Or John 3, 27. A man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from heaven. These are the big ideas. We want to emphasize the, the major trunks 
and branches of the Word of God, not the more obscure leaves, unless it's one of the more obscure leaves that attracts your attention. Even in an obscure leaf, there is great glory to God. There is an intricate and infinite beauty revealed in a leaf. But if none of the leaves stands out, go to the big trunks and branches. What are the big ideas? We never think enough on the great themes of Scripture, for example. We never think enough on the cross. So it's very simple. You've done your Bible reading? Go back. Okay. You know, I think I'll meditate on this verse. That's the one that stood out. But if nothing stands out, just pick one. But try to pick one that's one of the big ideas of the passage. Having done that, let's do in about seven minutes what I normally spend two hours on. That's methods. I use all of them some of the time. I don't use any of them all of the time. One way is to repeat the verse or phrase with emphasis on a different word each time through. Like this one in John 2, verse 5, where Mary has said to the head steward about Jesus, whatever he, tells to you, he says to you, do it. Well, just think how you can get a, a different flavor from those same words just by squeezing a different word each time. Whatever he says to you, do it. 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 Same words, but you got to do a different flavor each time through, didn't you? Anybody can do that. <clears throat> Now, there's another side of that that's very important. It's called context, but that's for another time and another place. For right now, this is this. See, the benefit of this, we're all in a hurry, and we say, okay, I've got five minutes here. I'm going to meditate on this one verse for five minutes. Where is it? What's the most important thing? What do I need to get out of this? How do I apply? What do I do here? This slows you down. It makes you look at one word at a time because each word is inspired. Another method is just to rewrite it in your own words. We can't improve upon it, of course, on the inspired original. But if you're going to say, I'm going to take John 3.16, imagine yourself going to send an email to somebody explaining John 3.16, but you couldn't use the words of John 3.16. So you put it in your own words. The process of thinking, how would I say this phrase? How would I say it? That's meditation going on. You have to understand what it does say before you can say it differently. Simple. Look for applications of the text. If you'll say to yourself, I'm not going to close my Bible until I know at least one thing God would have me do with this verse, you'll meditate. If you're meditating on John 3.16, ask yourself, how does God want me to do John 3.16? What does He want me to do in response to this? Something to believe, something to start, something to stop, something to say to someone, something to pray about. What is it? What does God want me to do with this verse? And I'm not going to close my Bible until I know one thing God would have me do. You'll meditate. Pray through the text. This is what we're going to spend the other two sessions on. But I want to point out to you at this moment that what we're going to be doing is not merely a method of prayer. It's also a method of meditation on Scripture. When you pray through a passage of Scripture... You're meditating on it. You're soaking in it. You're absorbing it. You think about it. You talk to God about it. You look at it again. You talk to God about it. That's also a method of meditation. 
Ask some Philippians 4.8 questions. You have a handout on these, I believe, don't you? Full page. I was reading Philippians 4.8 one day. It says, finally, then, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, and so forth, think on these things. Marginal note, think. Meditate on. So I simply took those eight terms there and turned them into questions. These are questions you can ask about any text. Or, remember, we said meditation is not just starting with the Bible and taking it to life. You can start with life and take it to the Bible. So you can say, you know, this, this thing that happened to you, why is God letting me go through this? You can ask yourself these questions. What's true about this or what truth does it exemplify? What is honorable? What is right? Some of these are questions we would never ask. But the Bible tells us here to ask them. Especially men, some of these things, whatever is, what is lovely about this? You know, well, not a question you'd ask as a man very often. But I remind you, Philippians 4, 8 says to ask those kind of questions. To think on these things. Next, the Joseph Hall questions. You have a handout on these as well. And incidentally, you want to explore these further. <clears throat> uh, the book, which I, I think you have out there, Simplify Your Spiritual Life. It is out there. The chapters are only two pages long in that book. There's 90 of them. There's a chapter on the Philippians 4.8 on the Joseph Hall questions. Elaborates more how to use them. You're especially going to need it on this one. More explanation than I have time to give. When I have the full bore, uh, four hours to do this, we'll go. Th- I will actually meditate on a verse of Scripture together. I'll write a verse up here and we'll collectively meditate on that verse using these Joseph Hall questions. And it would be far more clear than I have time to make it clear or illustrate it. Right now, Joseph Hall was a, a Puritan. Uh, he lived in the last half of the 1500s, early part of the 1600s. He wrote one of the best-selling books of its time in 1607, The Art of Divine Meditation. The Art of Divine Meditation, which is only about 50 pages long. And I'll tell you how you can print it off uh, for free. I don't think it's in print anywhere. But if you'll go to Google, and you know at the top it says Web Images, a few options like that. And the last one is More. And you click on that, and then there's a whole bunch of other things there. If you go to Google to more and then books and type in art of divine meditation. It'll take you to it and print the whole thing off and it's worth printing off. And these questions are in there, but I modified them so they're a little more understandable for our day. And on this page, you need to write one thing at the top. It's very important. The first question is by far the hardest, but it is the most important. The first question is by far the hardest. And I'll tell you that because if you tried to use this and you thought the first one, man, this is hard. I don't have, I'm not going to get through all ten of these. If you know the first one is the hardest one, that'll help. But it's the most important because it says define or describe what it is. Well, now notice all the rest of them deal with it. What causes it? What does it cause? If you don't know what it is, you can't answer the other questions. So if you know from the beginning that the first question is the hardest one, but it gets easier after that, uh, be useful. But these are questions I'll say incidentally, not only good for meditating on Scripture. You ever have anybody in here ever have to write term papers? You ever have to make a presentation at work? You ever write anything? This is an information generating machine. I'd love to have someone explore this sometime, and I may sick a seminary student with his dissertation on this sometime. But I think this explains, because it was so popular, so well known, they all knew it and used it, I think it explains why so many of the Puritan writers were, were so uh, uh, 
thorough and exhaustive on any subject they touched. They all knew these questions, and I think they all used them. But uh, this has a great application for schoolwork, for, for <coughs> business, for speaking, for writing, but particularly, <coughs> excuse me, meditation on Scripture. But the, the benefit of the, Joseph, of the Philippians 4.8, the Joseph Hall questions, meditational Scripture is this. It's a lot easier to answer questions than to generate information off the top of your head. For instance, if I said, I want you to flip over to the back of one of those sheets of paper so you've got a clear sheet of paper. Before you can leave this room, you have to write a one-page essay about the chair you're sitting in. Go. What in the world am I going to write about this dumb chair? But if I said, you've got to write a one-page essay about the chair before you can leave, but I want you to tell me, is it comfortable? Uh, it costs this much money. Do you think it's a good value? How could it be improved? Do you have any memories associated with that chair? Perhaps, you know, an experience that happened on a Sunday when you were sitting in that chair or someone that you saw in that, you know, any memories associated with that? Well, now that's a little easier to write, isn't it? Why? You're simply answering questions. You're not generating information off the top of your head. You get up in the morning, you're going to meditate on Scripture, say, okay, and I'm just going to read them, I'm going to meditate, let's see, where, what am I, you know, where do I start? If you've got a list of questions to answer, that kickstarts it for you. And maybe you want to come up with your own list of who, what, where, when, why, and how. I was reading an article on the plane coming yesterday. Four questions to ask uh, about a text of Scripture. It's just a lot easier to answer questions. It gives you a kickstart than just to go from scratch. Uh, discover a minimum, minimum number of insights into the text, a number that you set in advance. Um, if you say to yourself, I'm going to find three applications or five observations, something like that, there's a, there's a legendary assignment Howard Hendricks gives in a Bible study methods class at Dallas Theological Seminary, which is one of my best stories, and I don't have time to give it because it's time to finish the session. But he has them write 25 observations on Acts 1-8 from the English Bible. So he never had a student who couldn't do that. They come back the next day, they've got them. He says, all right, your assignment for the next class, 25 more observations. And they all swallow hard. What? You know, 25 more observations? He said, oh, in 50-plus years of teaching at Dallas Theological Seminary, I've never had one student who couldn't come up with at least 25 more. Well, knowing that, what are you going to do? <laughs> You're going to get them, right? And the next day he comes back. Everybody get them? Yes, we got them. We're up all night, but we got them. All right, your assignment for the next class is, and they hold our collective breath, as many as you can. Oh, good, because they're thinking, I might get 51, you know. And he says, oh, by the way, in all my 50 years of teaching, I've never, you know. He says, oh, the all-time record uh, is over 600. See you tomorrow. <laughs> 600. Well, what are you going to do? Well, you may not come back with 600, but knowing that some smart aleck did, you're not going to get 51, are you? Just knowing somebody has seen 550 more things in that text convinces you there must be more there, right? So what do you do? You look. Well, an infinite mind has inspired every text of Scripture. There's always more there to see than you have yet seen. Illustrations, applications, something. And if you will say, I'm not going to quit until I get the five or the three because I know they must be there, you'll meditate. Find a link or common thread between all the chapters or paragraphs that you've read. In other words, if you read, let's say you read three chapters from throughout the Bible, Old Testament, 
New Testament, Psalms. Find a link or common thread. Start out and say, now, how can I see Christ in all those? You know, I got read these three chapters. How can I see Christ? That's my filter in this case. There's so much in all three of them. How can I see Christ in them? Or maybe the current crisis in your life. How do those three chapters speak to the current crisis in my life? You're looking for something in particular, see, though the... You've looked at a wide variety of scriptures. You look in Psalm 51. Anything here about the current crisis in my life? Well, maybe you don't see it, but you, you look. You were scouring the scriptures. You were meditating on it, looking for something in particular. How can I see Christ in Psalm 51? See, he's not mentioned explicitly, but oh, knowing the New Testament, we see so much of Christ in Psalm 51. And then... Uh, that's another two hours right there. So, uh, not even going to get into that. All right, let me <clears throat> close this session now. I began by saying, you want to follow up there's <clears throat> first book on the list you'd want to look at. One of the five most influential books in my life. Not a Christian book. It's not an anti-Christian book. But I just, you know, it's like you don't more manual, you know. Uh, and I, I took his ideas for how to write your thoughts down, and I said, I'm going to use his method to write down my meditations on Scripture. Well, I said, meditation is what we're not doing. But that's the means of transformation given to us in the Bible. Some people would say, but Don, you don't understand my life. I don't have time for this. I, uh, ten minutes some days is the best I can do. And I, what I hear you saying is, oh, what you're doing is not nearly enough. You're going to have to give 20 minutes or something like that, or you're not going to be spiritual. And I know if I do more, I'd be better, but I don't have time to do more. This is not helpful. This is, this is a burden. That's not what I'm saying. Some days I realize you only have ten minutes. But if you only have 10 minutes, don't read for 10 minutes. Read for five minutes. And then do what for five minutes? Meditate for five minutes. For it is far better, if necessary, to read less. Now, I'm not advocating reading less of the Bible. All of my books out there will advocate reading through the Bible. Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but by... What word? What word? Every word? How are you going to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God if you've never read every word? I advocate reading through the Bible on a regular basis. I'm not advocating reading less. I'm just saying if necessary. If you only have ten minutes, and there are days we only have ten minutes. If necessary, it's better to read less and remember something than to read more and remember nothing. Right? Far better. If you've only got ten minutes, don't read for ten minutes. Read for five minutes. Meditate for five minutes. Far better to read less, but come away knowing you've heard from God. You've met with God. You've got something. You can meditate on day and night than to read for ten minutes and come away and not remember a thing that you've read. It's so simple. But we're simply not doing it. What we've got here is a failure to meditate. But you can do that. Let's pray. Father, I pray like Psalm 1 that every person here would become a meditator on the Word of God. Being refreshed by the water of the Word of God on a daily basis. Absorbing the water of the Word of God and transformed by it. I ask this in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen.